Welcome to What's the Law Say, a presentation of Legal Aid of West Virginia. I'm Clint Adams, Legal Director at Legal Aid of West Virginia. And in this episode, we will be discussing Social Security as it relates to cessations and overpayments. Before we get started, a brief disclaimer. Legal Aid of West Virginia is a nonprofit law firm providing legal services and advocacy to vulnerable West Virginians. This program is presented to bring relevant and current information. All the information is current at the time this podcast is published. Our guest attorneys are licensed to practice law in the state of West Virginia, and this uh, information relates only to the law in the state of West Virginia and is provided for informational purposes. While our guests and hosts are attorneys, uh, with the information that's presented as legal information, this does not take the place of an attorney-client relationship. You should speak with an attorney about your specific situation. My name is Clint Adams, Legal Director at Legal Aid of West Virginia, and in this episode, we're going to talk with Kira Mons who is going to talk with us about Social Security. Welcome to the program, Kira. Thanks, Clint. It's a pleasure to be here. So you want to talk to us about Social Security. You currently work as an attorney in our Wheeling office. Before you worked there at Legal Aid of West Virginia, what did you do? Well, before I joined Legal Aid of West Virginia, I was an attorney for the Social Security Administration for 10 years at the headquarters in Um, Baltimore, Maryland, and then also in Falls Church, Virginia, where my part of Social Security was located. Um, The one thing I want to let you know and your listeners know is that the opinions expressed on this podcast are mine and mine alone, and they do not reflect the positions or opinions of the Social Security Administration. What are some of the roles that the attorneys do inside the Social Security Administration? One of the concerns I think are questions individual claimants have is that the agency SSA doesn't feel to be personal like some of the state agencies. So it's almost shrouded in a mystery. So my part of the agency, I worked for uh, the Office of Appellate Operations, the Appeals Council. We had at that time between 900 to 1000 employees with the vast majority of those employees being attorneys. In that role, the attorneys review ALJ decisions and they make recommendations as to whether or not the individual decision would be defensible in federal court. So the question presented is, is the ALJ decision legally correct? Is it reasonable? That's not the same thing as to whether or not your individual claim should be granted. This is different and distinct from the hearings level operations. This is something that I think more individuals know. Attorneys are not just administrative law judges, but the vast majority of individuals writing those decisions are lawyers, but not all of them. Lawyers are also housed in the agency's Office of the General Counsel. They defend the agency in terms of a wide variety of legal issues that the agency might have. And then we also, at that time, had attorneys in the Office of the Inspector General. That's the watchdog for the agencies. Attorneys are also sprinkled through in various roles. One thing that a lot of the individuals probably don't know is that the Disability Policy Center is, for the most part, housed in my prior component, which is the Office of Appellate Operations. So as you talk about the attorneys, in essence, then they're looking at, when you said the ALJs, that would be the administrative law judges. 
Um, when you have a hearing at Social Security, you would appear initially, um, you would have a deputy make a decision, right? And then if they deny it, then you would appeal that to an a, to the administrative law judge. And then the attorneys would be reviewing that decision as the next level of appeal. Do I understand that correctly then? That's correct. And at, at that stage, the attorneys prepare and assist the ALJ or the administrative law judges in a very similar role as a law clerk in one of your state courts or even in a city court, a municipal court. So there's the preparation for the hearing, going through the record, preparing notes, and then there is the assistance in drafting the hearing decision. One thing that I think individuals don't understand is that the ALJ goes through and writes notes. It, you know, at step five of the sequential evaluation, that would be an analysis of whether or not you have a severe impairment. The ALJ would write notes. These impairments should be found severe. And this is very similar to what is done in a state court, but may not be as obvious to you as you're going through the hearing. So in most states, this is the third level of administrative review. So you would have your initial determination. If you're denied, that would go to the reconsideration level, and then you would have the right to request a hearing within the appropriate time frames. There are some states, not that many, that are prototype states. In, in those states, you would go from the initial level to the administrative law judge level. If you are appearing at the hearings level, the ALJ level, the administrative law ju judge level, that is now the Office of Hearings Operations. Now, one of the things you mentioned earlier was that in some states, the appeals may vary. Now, Social Security is a federal program, right? So are, are there differences from one state to the other um, as to how those appeals are handled? Absolutely not, as opposed to the as as it applies to the administration of the federal law. So there are partners with state agencies that work in conjunction with the Social Security Administration in fulfilling its mission to serve the American taxpayers and you know vulnerable Americans that have disabilities and the like or who retired. SSA is is applying a federal law, is applying federal laws and federal statutes. The Social Security Administration generally is aiming for consistency in adjudication. And that is true because there are quality review components that are looking for that consistency. So yes, Clint, it is a federal program um, and it would apply in all states and U.S. territories. Now, when we talk about this appeals process, we've noted that it, it that can happen if you're an initial applicant just applying for your Social Security. But periodically, as I understand it, um, people will be reviewed to determine, particularly in a disability setting, if they continue to be eligible for Social Security. Are you familiar with that process? Very familiar with that process. These are called continuing disability reviews. Generally, the time period in which they might be conducted would be three years as to the time of the original favorable decision or determination in your case. So the three-year diaries is what they'd call three years, and then we're checking to see if you're still disabled. That is if your impairments are impairments in which medical improvement may be expected. There are other cases in which medical improvement may not be expected intellectual disability, that would be a low IQ, or perhaps blindness um, that's extremely severe that would significantly limit your ability to work. These letters that you receive from SSA cause a lot of fear in our clients. They're scared. They have these benefits and they're not used to having to go through the process. There's a lot of fear and anxiety. So SSA gives people 
that period in which they can improve and get medical treatment and and perhaps that's not going to happen. So the CDR process, this is also the application of federal laws. This is a federal statute that requires SSA to conduct these reviews. This isn't discretionary and this would be the same for what we would call Title II disability insurance benefits or Title 16 supplemental security income, otherwise known as SSI. One other thing is that the the CDRs, as I'm going to call them in this podcast, also would apply to your Title 16 child cases. But if your child is being assessed at age 18 in an age 18 redetermination, that is not a CDR. That is just the regular application of the adult disability standard to that case. Now, you mentioned there'll be a review periodically for things where you might expect some improvement. Can you give some examples of things where you might see some improvement over something like that? This would be a situation where at the time you received a favorable decision or determination, you had cancer that would satisfy the requirements of a listing. But three to seven years later, knock on wood, you have received treatment. It is, in fact, successful and you can return to the workforce or, in fact, you may already have. Another situation would be degenerative disc disease, very, very severely limiting in your activities of daily living, your ability to continue to work at a capacity you would be expected to. You have surgeries, you have physical therapy, you have improved. That potentially is an impairment that that would be expected to improve. What's that process look like? What are they going to be looking at to see if you have improved? That is really the crux of the issue and probably why we're doing the podcast today. I received a letter. What's going on? What's going on is the agency is going to compare the prior favorable decision to how you're doing now. And the agency is looking to see if there's medical improvement. And really, it's going to be medical improvement that will be related to your ability to work. The standard that's applied is sometimes called MERS, which is the Medical Improvement Review Standard. The agency defines medical improvement as any decrease in the medical severity of your impairment that was present at the time of that favorable decision or determination and whether or not it has in fact decreased. And so they're looking at signs, symptoms, and laboratory findings. The one thing that you have to pay attention to as a claimant, if in fact you were ceased, at the initial level, they can decide that you continue, that that your disability continues without having to go through this administrative review framework. But if you are ceased at that initial level, the agency is going to look from the cessation date forward as to the period at issue. Walk me through that then. They may send you a letter that says, based on what we've seen, we think you're no longer eligible for Social Security, so you're going to stop getting it. And you say, no, I think I'm still eligible for Social Security. And you file the appeals process. I guess, is that the first step as that would go? They'd send you a letter that says, we're going to cut off your Social Security. The agency is a little nicer than that client at oh, first. Fair, <laughs> fair so, enough. But so saying, under- I'm not saying they don't say it nicer than that. I'm saying that still is what it says, though. <laughs> kind of. So under federal law, they are required to send you a notice that they are reassessing your continued entitlement or eligibility to receive benefits based upon disability. So what that means 
at that juncture, they're letting you know they're going to review. One thing I want to let the listeners know and our clients know is that it's extremely important to continue to have your address updated with SSA and your email address. This can be done online and by calling the agency's 1-800 number or potentially going into a field office. The agency places an affirmative duty, meaning it's your job to keep your information up to date. But to answer your question as to the scary letter, you'll have time to submit your own evidence and potentially have a consultative examination before you get that letter, but you're absolutely right. If you get a letter telling you that the agency is no longer believes that you are disabled, then at that point that would trigger the reveal pro- the appeal process. So you would submit a request for reconsideration, you would explain the reasons why you disagree with that determination. So they may do this process on the back end um, and determine just on a cursory review says, yeah, we know this person's still going to be eligible. And then you'll just get a letter that says, we did a review, you're still eligible. And then sometimes they may do it and say, we're going to need more information. And then further down the road, then there's a cancellation. Do I understand that? Yes. And I would say the best practice is before making that initial determination, they'll contact you and and try to get some updated medical records. What will they be looking at then in this evaluation? They're looking to determine if you're still disabled. What kind of things do they need to see to make that determination? Before we talk a little bit about the analysis that SSA and staff would perform, what I generally advise clients and, and individuals is refreshed medical records. One thing that I think individuals feel it's personal, right? I showed you everything. I'm disabled. What more do you want? And what the agency wants is to see it. So what we're talking about, if you have been ceased, is medical records from the cessation date or a little bit before, perhaps 12 months before would be policy compliant and forward. And if you haven't been getting that treatment, it's important to follow up with your specialist and your providers. Aside from the CDR being a scary process, CDRs can be positive for you to continue to go out, to refresh your your medical treatment, to reestablish those treating relationships. Really what you'd like to do for your case is to fill out the initial form they're going to mail you and they're going to say, hey, look, what evidence do we need? Write it all down. You know, Dr. Smith is a pain specialist. I see him Mondays and this is his address and this is the phone number so they can request those records and you'll just go down the list. If the agency has trouble getting those records for whatever reason, you can go out and get them and submit them yourself. And you need to sign a form that would authorize SSA to request those records on your behalf as well. So, Kira, can the uh, can the physicians charge you a fee if you're um, getting the medical records to provide them to Social Security? Well, to answer that, like all lawyers, it depends. In West Virginia, we have a code section on this, and it's West Virginia Code 16292, and that's 16. 16- 292. So if you're listening at home, this is a quick Google search. You may want to print that out when you go and talk to your treatment provider. So basically what this West Virginia Code section is saying is that a medical provider could charge a patient or a patient's representative no more than a fee consistent with what HIPAA 
would allow. That said, if you inform your medical provider that this is in fact for Social Security and that it would be a financial hardship or you would have issues in terms of inability to pay, these records can be provided at no cost on your behalf. And so if you're listening at home and you're like, what's the hippo she's talking about? That's HIPAA for the record, which is the Health Insurance Portability and Something Act, um, which is a federal law that talks about the privacy of medical information and provides certain provisions in there about things like copying. We're talking about a different federal law that's really a little bit unrelated, but because it was mentioned, I wanted to make sure that we're all on the same page as to what we're talking about. So now we've we've walked through what we're going to be doing. We want to make sure that our social that our social security claimants are receiving medical care and that they're meeting with their providers on a regular basis. And assuming that we're doing that, and now Social Security says we want to review your case. So you're going to send that information to them um, is what your duty would be as a claimant. On the back end, what's Social Security doing with all that information? This is one of the most complex and sophisticated analyses that the agency will do. So as opposed to your regular case for an adult disability where a five-step evaluation is performed, here with your continuing disability review, the agency is obligated and has in its policy that they will perform in eight steps. So three more steps in the CDR (laughs) process. Nothing like federal law in Social Security (laughs) to make it a little bit more specific. So let's let's talk about what those eight steps might look like. Um, walk us through that eight step process. So the very first step that SSA will consider is the individual currently engaging in SGA. Substantial gainful activity. The agency has a set of specific dollar amounts, which comes out every year. And if you're earning more than that amount, generally speaking, it, it would affect your disability benefit. That said, this question is the individual engaging in SGA only applies to Title II claimant. This is someone who has an insured status. It's called disability insurance benefits. So for our Title 16 SSI folks, it's really seven steps. This is not a question that is asked at the outset of your review. The next question, step two, SSA is going to look at your current alleged impairment. This is what's going on in your life now. The agency is going to look to see whether these conditions meet or equal a listing and the current listing of impairments. So the agency has what they would call specific listings that have requirements. Basically, if you have these certain laboratory findings or records, you're disabled. Then to go through the heart of this analysis, the one thing I want you to take away is have you had medical improvement? That's what they're looking for here. So the third step is this medical improvement step. That is where there is a comparison of the evidence. So this isn't just a comparison of the impairments, what's wrong with you. This is the evidence, right? This is what you've submitted from your doctors, the laboratory findings, what you're presenting to the agency, what you're telling them affects your day-to-day. They're going to look at that that evidence that was in effect at your last favorable decision or determination, and they're going to compare it to how you are now. The agency is going to consider whether or not that prior listing is still met or equal, whether it's met or equal. 
the agency can look at obsolete listings, listings that no longer exist. So they're going to pull up the now obsolete listing and say, hey, look, is the listing met or equaled, right? If the listing is met or equaled, then your medical improvement will not be related to the ability to work. So at this point, you would be continued and the analysis would cease. So let's say you met a, a listing whenever you applied, let's say the diabetes example. Now you receive treatment, you're no longer eligible for diabetes, but you had a horrendous car accident between the time that you were approved for disability. So now you may be eligible under something different that didn't apply at the time you got your disability. How do they consider that when they do one of these continuing disability reviews? So at step two, look at your current alleged impairments and whether or not they meet or equal a current listing. You have that car crash. You have residuals. This is serious. The agency is going to look at multiple listings and see if potentially they would equal the severity of the listing. And only a medical professional can conclude that you would equal the severity of the listing. But to answer your question, a car crash that would meet the listing would satisfy it at step two. You're not going through this, the eight steps or the seven steps. Your claim would be continued at that stage. Now, if it's not listing level, the car crash and the residuals would not satisfy the requirements of a new listing at step four. This is medical improvement, but is it related to the ability to work? There will then be an RFC com comparison. RFC. Is, whoa, whoa, whoa. What's an RFC? RFC is called the residual functional capacity. That is where the agency is looking at the severe impairments. So these are the impairments that, that are affecting, you know, your day-to-day -day life. You know, you're looking at impairments that the agency has found are severe. And the agency is, is looking to the evidence, the medical opinions in the record to determine what limitations that you have from these conditions. So notwithstanding your impairments, what are you still able to do? After the assessment of that residual functional capacity, there would be a further analysis. Now let's take a situation like, for example, now I'm, I'm an attorney. Um, let's say I would have some sort of a disease or some sort of an accident that would affect my cognitive ability to reason in that I couldn't be an attorney. What weight does that go into it? Or do they look at if there are other positions that I might be able to do as they do this continuing disability review? An attorney that's having those cognitive limitations, the agency is sensitive to those conditions. And, and that's why they've assessed your residual functional capacity. Well, hey, what can you still do? But you may not still be able to be an attorney. And the agency is going to look at that. So there will then be an analysis of your current severe impairments in that RFC. So after going through at the medical improvement stage and looking at your impairments then and the same impairments now and doing an RFC, we're now moving on. You, you, you haven't been paid. You're, you're still moving through this process. There's still things to consider. We're now going to look at the severity of your current impairments with a new assessment of your RFC. We're, you know, we're throwing in everything, right? We're throwing in the car crash. We're throwing in your cognitive issues that you're having because you're an attorney and you're struggling. The agency is going to try to assess whether or not you can do your past relevant work. This is how that's going to play out for the attorney. So the attorney is now going to have limitations in their ability to concentrate persist and keep up on a specific pace. 
So as an attorney, then I can no longer be an attorney, but there's other work that I can do. Would that mean that I would still qualify for Social Security disability or would that mean that I might no longer be eligible? It depends. So the agency will probably consult a vocational consultant or vocational expert and there will be a comparison. There will be a consideration based upon your age, education, vocational profile, whether or not there would be jobs existing in significant numbers in the national economy. So given the fact that you potentially have the car crash, you have the cognitive issues, you have other issues that are going on, you may not be able to perform other work. If you can't perform other work. So let's talk, first of all, while this process is happening, do I continue to get my Social Security disability while we're um, going through this appeals process? You can elect statutory benefit continuation. So that's benefits while the appeals are pending only through the administrative law judge level. And that would be the date that the ALJ would issue a potentially unfavorable decision. If it is found that your disability does not continue, then those payments then would become overpayments and you're potentially going to be required to pay that money back to SSA. So let's talk about what an overpayment looks like. That means that you got benefits then that you weren't entitled to based on the findings of Social Security. Sometimes those can be substantial, as I understand it. So how does Social Security address those overpayments? First of all, you'll receive a notice of that overpayment very similar to the CDR notices. You will have to remember to keep your address information fresh, updated with the agency. There are three things that you can do after you receive that notice. Number one, if you believe that, oh man, I really do owe this money, you can negotiate a payment plan with the agency. Number two, if you believe that this overpayment should not have been assessed at all, or if there's an error in the calculation, you can challenge that. The other part of this too, is that the, the case of the CDR client, right? They're receiving those benefits. They're not really going to dispute whether or not that overpayment should be assessed. They're not going to dispute the amount, but they think it's ridiculous that they have to pay. So for those individuals, there there, there are ways that you can request the waiver and, and when the agency would waive it. So they're going to waive it if you're without fault and the recovery or adjustment of the overpayment would defeat the, the purpose of either Title II or Title 16 or be a guest against equity and good conscience. This basically is, hey, look, is this fair? And then for Title 16 people, there's an additional consideration whether or not it would impede the effective or efficient administration of the program because of the amount involved. That would be an administrative waiver. There are certain amounts that the agency is allowed to waive. <clears throat> if, if you don't remember anything, but you do remember this, basically for CDR people, these waivers are not going to be that hard to get. If you continued to appeal your determination in good faith at cessation, then generally these are going to be waived. But if you continue to elect benefit continuation and you don't show up to your hearing and you don't show up to the CEs, that failure to cooperate looks a lot like bad faith. You just appealed it to get the money. And this waiver request can be, you can raise it at any time, either expressly or impliedly in writing or orally. 
And as you talk about that good faith, one of the things I think that's really important to impress on anyone that's getting this is to be transparent with Social Security. So if you think you can return to work, you try to return to work and you start making some money, make sure you're letting them know what your wages are, how much you're being paid, and, and be sure to report that. As I understand, you can do that online now. Um, but that's another place where we sometimes see overpayments is someone didn't report that they were working, um, and then that can result in an overpayment. And those are viewed a little bit differently? If Absolutely. The agency takes fraud very seriously because it's not just, it's not fraud and just, you know, oh, this is bad. It's, it's fraud because it's affecting everybody that's paying into this program too. It's, a, it's affecting your neighbors, everyone like that. The best thing that you can do, it's kind of like if, if your parents think you're sneaking out, but you're lying, it's always easier to come clean and tell the truth, right? Always let SSA know. The truth will set you free. And the sooner you tell the truth, the better it will be. So what's the process look like, whether you get the overpayment because you failed to report that you were working or you went through the the, the continuing disability review and were not approved? So there are specific forms. You can also write in, I'd like a waiver. I'd like this payment to go away. You don't have to use every magic word, right? That's an implied request. This can also be asserted on your behalf and you can call in and you can request this orally. Is there a timeline or can you request the overpayment at any time? This request can be made at any time generally, but I would always, always ad advise or inform our, our clients or individuals to make this request as soon as possible. Now, let's say you talked earlier, maybe I realize that I'm no longer eligible and I've returned to work and I've set up for a payment plan to try to, to pay the money back and then I lose my job. So a couple of years down the road, I still owe a substantial amount in the overpayment. Could I request it then even though I'm on a payment plan? It, it may be a little bit trickier because you basically entered into an agreement or plan that you could pay back. But I would say there is flexibility in terms of what you could be obligated to pay. If you were paying $3,000 a month, and now you can only pay $10. Also, if you call Legal Aid of West Virginia, we have fantastic, fantastic claimant representatives. They are West Virginia Works TANF paralegals. They are experts at this. All right, Kira, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us about these issues. Thanks so much, Clint. It was a pleasure speaking with you.